the more that I sit and think about that night that I talked about in the previous two episodes, the more stuff that seems to come to the surface. And I can't help but think to myself, anybody listening has got to be thinking to themselves, why did this girl not leave earlier? Because I am definitely thinking that. And I know hindsight is 2020, but it's just crazy to me that all of this stuff happened and I really had absolutely no idea what was going on. But in a sense, I did know what was going on too. And I've talked about this before where I believed that two completely different things were actually true at the same time. So yes, my parents were evil monsters, but I also loved them. But I also did not love them and did not look at them as if they were my parents. So how does that make sense? How does anyone like even begin to make sense of that? How do you figure out how your mind can work in such a weird way like that? And the answer is just so simple. I was brainwashed. I was severely gaslighted. And I was experiencing an enormous amount of pain and fear. When I was extremely young, I was very aware that there were videos that were being taken of the sales. When I was older is when I started to realize what my parents' main purpose for that was. And of course, it was for blackmail. Yet I always believed that it was just to blackmail the client. And in a lot of ways, it did. And that's what its main purpose was, in fact, for. But they also did use it on me as well to scare me into staying silent. Because I wouldn't want anybody to see these videos of me. Because then they would know that maybe I enjoyed it or maybe I wanted it. They would essentially mock me about the videos and say that they were not proof of the abuse and what was happening to me, but instead proof that it was not happening. And it was just so much strange conversations that I can remember having. There were threats, but they didn't feel like threats at the time. But it was all about the power and the control to keep me in their grasp and to make sure that I never even thought about leaving. And the videos they used to shame me, they would force me to watch them so that way they could point out all my flaws during the assault. So I would feel like if I had ever told anyone about it, they would know that I wasn't very good at it. It kept me quiet in so many different ways. And even today, I don't know how many people have seen pictures or videos of me, but I do know that they are out there and it is just something that sticks with you forever. Now, nobody knows that it's me. They may not recognize my face or anything else, but it's just the thought in knowing that someone is looking at them maybe right now at this very moment that haunts me every day. There were a lot of things I was able to overcome, but this is one of the harder things. 
because it's like it is still happening today. There is this misconception that if you are in possession of child pornography, that it is a victimless crime because you did not take the picture or the video of that child and that child is not in the room with you. And I understand why people may think that, but I am telling you that it is in no way victimless because we may not be in the room, but we are somewhere and we know that it's out there. We were there when the pictures and videos were taken and the things that are in them are real and really happened. It is not a victimless crime. It is an endless crime that follows you every single day for the rest of your life. There are times where I would get emails from a strange email account and my heart just drops into my stomach because I think it's an email of them sending me a video. When I'm out in public and someone looks at me, sometimes I think maybe they recognize me. It really is a daily haunting. Back in the late 90s, there was a ring that was uncovered called Club Wonderland. A girl in California had been assaulted at a sleepover by her friend's father. She went home and told her mother, and then it was reported to the police. It was soon found out that he was part of a group called the Orchid Club. And after further investigating, they were able to uncover one of the biggest pedophile rings in the world at the time, Club Wonderland. It was all during Operation Cathedral, and it uncovered a network. They were all over the world, and in order to get in, you had to supply 10,000 videos or pictures that were not already in the club and were self-produced. So as you can imagine, most people used their children. And that did two things. It showed the club that you were one of them, but it also gave them blackmail on you. When they were finally brought down and everything was recovered that they could from each of the members, there was more than 750,000 images and 1,800 videos. As the police went through all of the evidence, they were able to isolate 1,263 individuals appearing in the images yet they have only been able to identify 17 to this day. One of the most upsetting things for me, at least, is that every single person that was arrested during these raids is already out of prison. They served their sentence and is now able to walk as free men. I did a lot of research into Club Wonderland because I didn't know if I was a victim or not. All the images that they have of the children's faces are kept in a secret place and you have to get special permission to go and look to see if you are one of them. I just, I cannot wrap my head around the fact that they were able to isolate 1,263 faces and yet only identify 17. And that just shows you exactly what networking can do. It also shows how deep blackmail can go. 
I first heard about this while watching a documentary, and that was when I thought, wow, it just feels so familiar, and I wanted to learn more about it. So found out as much as I could, but there really isn't a lot of information about it. And I'm not sure if it was because of the time that it happened or the content, but it did make me realize a lot of things about my past. I remembered the pictures being taken, and I remembered the videos being taken. I remember being forced to watch mine and other children's. I remembered so many different things that I had forgotten all about because at the time, maybe it was irrelevant or at the time just too traumatic. Now, I want to make it clear that I do not know if I was a victim of Club Wonderland or not. It's just the timing and the things that were happening to me at the time that led me to believe that it was a possibility. But it did open my mind to realizing that what I was going through was not isolated. And when I thought about a time that I was brought to a party, it became abundantly clear that it was just as likely that any of those kids could have been victims too. It really opened my eyes to how widespread this entire issue was and how extensive sex trafficking is embedded in all the communities around the world. And it really makes you think about how do you keep yourself safe? Because this can happen to anyone. So the first thing that I thought about was while I was driving and I saw a woman that had a mama bear decal with little paw prints underneath it on the back of her car. There were three sets of paw prints. So I could tell that she was a mother and had three children. I thought about the time that my husband was in the military and a lot of wives had army wives stickers on their cars, which told people that, well, their husbands are away a lot. There's a lot of posts going around right now about what you should and should not post in first day school pictures. And I just realized how much information that we give about ourselves without even knowing about it. Our social media gives away our location, no matter if we have it hidden or not. On my social media, I follow news sites all over the country. I want to stay as updated on arrests of sex trafficking as I possibly can. And I comment on many of those news posts, so that makes it a little harder to find out where I actually live. Because you could see me arguing on a post from Rhode Island when I may never have even stepped foot in that state. So I think it is important to know that you can give out more information than you think you are giving out. And that's how you learn to start to stay safe by learning what information you may be giving to predators. I know this next topic, I had ruffled a lot of feathers when I spoke about it on TikTok. And people even tried to use it against me to show that I was not a genuine survivor. But think of Club Wonderland. They worked off of a referral basis. You never just came across them. Somebody had to tell you that they existed. And that's how it's like for most pedophile and sex trafficking rings. And almost all of them are also similar with the blackmail to get into the club. 
There's been numerous TV shows that have done stories on so many networks that explain this. And it's starting to become a very well-known fact for some people. So what happens when your child is targeted on social media? My children instantly send me screenshots and a link to the account. We report it to missing and exploited children, the FBI tip line, and the human trafficking hotline if we believe that it is in fact a trafficker. We do not engage with the account. I do not screenshot and make a post warning other people. And I know that you may think that that's not the right thing to do because we should warn people. But let me explain why I don't. If I made a TikTok video or an Instagram and I posted a screenshot of that account and I was using that green screen, which basically pops up behind me and I point at it and say, look at this, this person is a pedophile and a predator. They've targeted my kids and we need to mass report the account so we can have it taken down. Yes, a lot of people will be warned about that account. But how many predators and pedophiles are on social media in disguise, either on their real account or a fake one? How many of them will see my video and see that person's username? Let's say a sex trafficker sees my post because I use a hashtag that they like to surf through to find posts like that. And then they reach out to that person and ask if they would like to meet up or get in contact with each other. Now they have networked. And what was an innocent post of a terrified mother trying to warn others because their child was targeted now possibly led to a child being sex trafficked. I am in no way blaming anyone that has done this. Or am I saying that it is your fault that it may have ended up that way? Or that it would be your fault if it did? I am just saying that it is a possibility and I don't think it's worth taking that chance. That is my decision. It does not have to be yours. It's just something I want you to think about. Because like I said, we give out so much more information than we think that we do. And sometimes we assist pedophiles in networking. I was asked a lot on my TikTok videos how people found my parents or how my parents found people that wanted to purchase children. And the only answer that I could think of was the networking. The parties were one very good place that that worked. They were able to be around like-minded people and they were able to talk with other parents that were also sex trafficking their own children. And it would just grow from there. In this day and age, with the internet and social media, it has made it easier for them to network. And think about it, if there's somebody that makes a post and says, hey, look at this person, do you know that that person who made the post really has children? Do you know that they really are a mother or a father? Are you shown any proof of what 
the person that supposedly targeted their children did? Or is it possible that they are the pedophile and they are just pretending to be a worried parent so they can get their other account out there and known? I don't know how to solve that problem other than to make people aware and let them judge for themselves how they feel it is best for them to handle that type of situation. But for me and my children, we do not make it public. We just report it to the proper authorities and get the accounts taken down that way. It has worked beautifully for us, and I rest easier knowing that maybe I save someone by not going public with the name or the profile. But again, life is all about choices, and you can choose how you want to handle that situation. I just wanted to make people think a little bit. After I gave my speech, I met with a reporter about a new law that they wanted to pass here. And when I read it, it was about if a sex trafficking victim was arrested for prostitution, that if they pled guilty, they could apply for victim status and have everything wiped clean. And as I read it, I read all the things that a victim would need to show that they were in fact a victim and that they weren't doing it by their choice and that they had been coerced. I instantly knew that that long laundry list of things that you could submit to get your victim status would be hard for a victim to get. A lot of things that were on that list, a victim of sex trafficking would not have access to. But I thought about a different perspective that kind of threw the reporter through a loop a little bit. And I told her that this bill sounds nice and it sounds like it's going to help victims. But I told her to think about a couple of questions. Number one, how long does that victim status take to get? And number two, does the accused trafficker get sentenced prior to the completion of the victim status? We couldn't find any answer throughout that entire bill. So I said to her, this is my main concern, was you have to plead guilty, which essentially means that you have to admit that you willingly committed the crime of prostitution. It is illegal, but it also shows that you were not coerced or forced into doing it. So if your trafficker got to court prior to you receiving your victim status, they could use your guilty plea to get their sex trafficking charge thrown out. You cannot sex traffic someone if there is not force, coercion, or fraud involved. So while the bill seems like it does help victims, and it would, it could also potentially help their trafficker even more. Throughout our conversation, I explained to her that I have learned a lot of things along the way. And one of the biggest things is if you want to end sex trafficking and you want to make laws that help victims or do things and give advice to the community that would help victims, you have to stop only looking through the victim's eyes, but also look through the eyes of the sex trafficker. 
So you have to ask yourself, how can they use this to their benefit? And for that bill, the answer was the guilty plea would get the sex trafficking charge thrown out. When it comes to sharing the profiles, ask yourself, how can a pedophile benefit from me doing this? And the answer is networking. Using things like this can be so beneficial for not only victims, but for putting an end to sex trafficking and even child abuse. Everyone wants to protect the victims, and we should absolutely always keep them in the number one spot. But sometimes to do that, you have to think about how the perpetrator is going to use whatever they can to hurt the victim or to help themselves. And what I talked about in my previous episode when I got my second restraining order, that is a perfect example. I thought about everything that they were going to say to try to get out of it and try to have the restraining order thrown out, and I used it against them. And I hope that by sharing my stories and sharing different aspects of that, we can start as a society to change how we attack sex trafficking and try to put an end to it for good. Yes, awareness is 100% going to be the best way. The stories of survivors can also be such a useful tool because you can kind of get the mindset of the sex trafficker through my story and the stories of others. Like I've said in other episodes, I can't tell you what laws would have protected me, but I can tell you which ones failed me and which ways the system failed me. And I feel so strongly about all of this. This is what the anti-sex trafficking organizations are working to do, and that is to expose the minds of sex traffickers. Yes, they are telling you the signs that you can look for to spot a victim, but when you spot a victim, you also spot the sex trafficker, and you know where to call and where to report. Polaris Project is an amazing organization, They have so much information on their website that help you determine myth from fact because there is a lot of conspiracy theories and lies that are floating around right now. And in my honest opinion, I truly believe sex traffickers play a huge part in the misinformation campaign that is going on right now because those are the ones that would benefit from it the most. Always listen to your gut and always call the authorities. Once you see something, you cannot unsee it. And once you know something, you cannot unknow it. And it's always better to be wrong and make the call than to be right and do nothing. I think one of the more difficult things is when I look and realize exactly how much my life was consumed by the sex trafficking. Even at a young age, everything was about that. I did not go to school to get good grades because they wanted me to succeed in life. I went to school and got good grades, so people did not think that there were things happening to me at home. There was not any pictures of me around the house that were not causing me shame. And that was so I had a constant reminder not to tell. 
I was like, I want to say maybe 10, 11, even 12. And seeing those pictures, I just had this feeling that if I told someone that I would also have to tell them about those pictures. So in a sense, those pictures always helped to keep me silent because I never wanted anyone to see them. And it's so hard to wrap my mind around the fact that I lived in this big, beautiful home and everybody thought that we were this wealthy, happy family and probably even thought I was a little bit spoiled because they did not know what was happening behind closed doors. Except they did know what was happening behind closed doors because there was a lot of people in the neighborhood that suspected something. But instead of going to the police or someone that could have helped me, they instead went to my mother. Back then, and maybe even a little bit now, women are always looked at as possible victims. They are not looked at as the aggressors or the abusers. So if something had felt off to a neighbor whose kids I babysat, they would go to my mother thinking she was safer to talk to than my father would be. When in reality, she was worse. But nobody asked me, and I don't understand why. And now that I'm away and I've gotten older, I'm being told that I share too many details, or I'm being told that I do not share enough. I'm being demanded to name names, even though it puts me and my family in danger. I am asked constantly why I haven't gone to the police, even though people do not even know if I have or not. It's like there are so many things that so many people could have done when I was a child and they failed me. So now society thinks that I have to pick up where they left off. So exactly how fair is that? Why is it that I, as a survivor, have to hold the guilt that it is possible that my parents are still trafficking? But I'm the one that has to call the authorities constantly to have them investigate them to make sure that they are not. But not a single person did that for me when I was a child. People do not ask how I'm doing or if I'm okay. They do not ask what they can do, like what laws would help me and what they should talk to their legislators about. They ask about why I will not go to the police. Well, I ask, why didn't anyone else? Why doesn't anyone else? Why is it that society is starting to wake up to this horrific crime But yet they're listening to the ones that are making noise more than the ones that are telling the truth about it. I mean, let's be honest. If you see a video on TikTok or social media about a girl that was chased by a man in a store, that video will get millions of views within a few hours. But some of my videos have barely gotten any views because people don't want to hear the truth about it. And maybe it's because deep down inside they know that it is likely that they witnessed sex trafficking and did nothing, either because they did not know 
what the signs were or because they just chose to look the other way because they did not want to get involved because it was terrifying for them. Either way, the lies get the attention and the noise that is created by the people that would benefit the most from the truth getting pushed down is working. And maybe we can come together and figure out why it is working so then we can actually do something about it. I don't know what all the answers are, but in the end, the biggest thing is I know that I do not have them. And I think that society cannot come to grasp with the fact that they do not have those answers either. They need them, but they do not have them. Fear does a lot to a person. It kept me in a horrible situation for 26 years. It had me believing that it was normal for a parent to rape their child and to take them to a party so others could rape them as well. And I think now that sex trafficking is being talked about, more people are afraid of it. And that fear is making them so thirsty for answers that they do not know where to turn, except the ones that are talking about it. So which situation do you think would make someone feel better? The fact that if they hear their neighbor's child crying, it is possible that they are being trafficked or that the trafficking happens on some app on their phone that they don't download or in some underground tunnel that's far away from their home. The further that they can distance the sex trafficking from themselves, the better that they feel. And that is just human nature. There is nothing wrong with that, except they miss so much. To give an example, I used to sit out back with a neighbor and I would talk with her while her children played so I could get some sunlight because I have vitamin D problems. And we would hear this little girl a few houses down scream and it started to become clear that it was the same time every day because I would go out back at the same time every day to meet with my neighbor. At first, we just made the assumption that she just didn't want to go down for her nap, which was a very fair assumption. But I started to notice that there was a different car parked outside every single day. And I just had this weird feeling in my gut that I wasn't 100% sure what it even was. But I called CPS anyways, and I filed an abuse report and said that she was crying at the same time every single day. Her mother would always shut the blinds and the window prior to the screaming. And it just gave me this really bad feeling that there might be something more to just not wanting to take a nap. And the key point was that car out front was different every day. And when the detective called to talk to me about it, they always asked for the description of the cars. Well, after a few short days, the mother was arrested for sex trafficking her daughter. That car was the key in all of it. Now, was it because of what I went through in the past that made me able to notice that? I don't know. But every other person in the neighborhood thought it was nap time. And just that gut feeling of mine and that call that I made about the car saved that little girl. The point of me sharing this part is because a nap is so normal. 
yet I did not have a normal life, so that wasn't something that seemed normal to me. It was something that drew my attention. So if we as a society start to stop looking at something and being like, wow, that's so normal, then we will start to see the small things that could make the difference. We've got a lot of work to do, but I feel like we are finally heading in the right direction. People are talking. We just have to make sure that the conversation stays on point. We cannot let the noise be louder. So if you notice somebody sitting there and trying to take attention away and you truly want to make a difference, just get louder. Make the message that we need to end sex trafficking louder than all the noise surrounding the things that will make it harder to put an end to it. The night that my parents threw me through a door was my breaking point and changed everything. And eventually, everyone is going to reach that point for themselves that changes how they look at everything as well. And that is how we come together and end this horrific world that happens in plain sight, that happens right in front of you, that happens at your neighbor's house. It is not happening on an app on a smartphone or in some underground tunnels somewhere. It is not just on an island in the Caribbean. It's right next door. It's right across the street. And it could even be inside your own family. So I hope that these words will help you to see it. And I just want to end this by saying that I am so incredibly thankful for everyone that has listened to any episode and has made the conscious decision that they want to notice things. Just like a woman said to me after the speech I gave, that she never wants to be the one who does not notice. Those words are forever engraved on my heart, and it is what keeps me going and gives all of this purpose. Yes, I put my life in danger by sharing my story, but if I save just one, it makes it all worth it. Because maybe you will save just one, and then you will share this podcast with a friend, and they will save just one, and it will go on and on until we can save everyone. No one can do this alone, but if we all work together, it can happen.